is here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, it's Friday, and it's a perfect time to keep our foot on the gas pedal, but to step back and put events in a broader context. You see what's going on with the culture, what goes on in our media, what's taking place in politics, our universities and colleges, our public school system. You see, so much that defines Americanism as being degraded. And being replaced with something else. And this something else is really rather amorphous. It's hard to define it. It doesn't have a blueprint. It's hard to get your hands around it. And that's what happens when we're being devoured by a theory. An abstraction. And that theory and abstraction is progressivism. And the people you see, the Samantha Bees, the Jimmy Kimmels, the Stephen Colberts, the Jake Tappers, Don Lemons, Scarborough, all of them, and so many Democrats you've become familiar with on TV, media types at the New York Times and Washington Post, they are the progenitors. They are the the activists for this ideology, wittingly and unwittingly. The dumber among them, unwittingly. The smarter among them, wittingly. When I hear it said, can't we get along in politics? Can we do something in a bipartisan way? For us to get along with progressivism is for us to surrender constitutionalism. It's to surrender the Declaration of Independence. Those of you who've listened to this program or watched Levin TV or those of you who've read my books, particularly my last one, Rediscovering Americanism, you understand this. There is no way for progressivism and constitutionalism to function together in harmony. The Constitution has firewalls. Progressivism does not. The Constitution separates powers to prevent the centralization of authority in the handful of a relative few. Progressivism preaches the concentration of power in the handful of a, of a number, a few number of elitists claiming to, to work for the people. The Constitution emphasizes individualism. That's why we have the Bill of Rights. Progressivism emphasizes Collectivism, that you can realize your individualism through the collective. They're oil and water, which is why the early intellectual progressives blasphemed the Declaration of Independence and its principles, blasphemed the founders of this country. And you hear it today, oh, they're slave owners. So nothing they wrote, nothing they said, nothing they did is to be taken, not just seriously, but with reverence. 
So the nation they created is a nation that is so defective, so devoid of morality and principles that it is to be replaced. And replaced with what? Well, to be replaced with progressivism. Well, what is it? Well, we don't know exactly. We know its general outlines. We know that it seeks to fundamentally transform us from a constitutional republic to something else. And that's what's taking place. And that's the so-called resistance, the resistance to constitutional republicanism, the resistance to the principles set forth in the Declaration of Independence and set forth in our governing document, which is the manifestation of our principles in the Declaration, that is the Constitution. And you can see the cultural rot that results from this. Because progressivism has no moorings. What's here today is greater than what was here yesterday. And what's here today is not great enough because tomorrow we're going to even make it greater. Not you individuals, not entrepreneurs, not people of faith, government. Government's going to do this. And so the more that you embrace our founding principles, the more you're a reactionary, the more you're a right-winger, the more you're this, the more you're that. And we've reached a point now, as I wrote about in Liberty and Tyranny and subsequently, that we have in this country a soft tyranny. You don't see it every day. It's not in your face. There aren't soldiers marching up to your front door. But there are things you cannot do and cannot say. That should be perfectly free to do and perfectly free to say. It happens in our college campuses. It happens in the workplace. So we have this this dark cloud hanging over us which resists not Donald Trump. It resists individualism. It resists constitutionalism. That's why it is so difficult for judicial nominees who pledge to actually uphold the Constitution and the intent of the framers to get confirmed, to get any votes by Democrats. Because once you've reached the point of being a United States senator and you're a leftist and you're a Democrat, a.k.a. a progressive, which really means a statist, you understand the stakes. Most of the Republicans on Capitol Hill are too ignorant to understand the force that they're up against. So they try to manage it. They try to appease it. They often acquiesce to it. Try to cut deals with it. And that's where we are today. Woodrow Wilson understood progressivism is incompatible with constitutionalism. And he spent most of his intellectual life before being elected president of the United States trashing the Declaration and the Constitution, trashing the founders of the country. They had to tear them down like modern professors do, tenured professors in our Ivy League schools and most of our colleges and universities. That's what they do. You must destroy our history. You must destroy our foundational principles. You must destroy our ancestors. And so you hear it all the time. The slave owner founders, white privilege, um, the injustices and equities of capitalism and private property rights. Well, what's all that mean? Despite the fact that we are the freest nation on the face of the earth, for all people, 
including the tens of millions who would come into this country from the third world of all backgrounds and races and religions. Despite the fact we're the wealthiest country, not because of government redistribution or any government department or agency, but because of individuals, because of enterprise, American industry and intuition and and innovation. Despite all that, we have to emphasize robber barons, polluters, monopolies, in order to destroy the intellectual infrastructure, if you will, of the greatest nation on the face of the earth. And what are we replacing it with? Barack Obama's ideas, Hillary Clinton's ideas, Chuck Schumer's ideas, Jimmy Kimmel's ideas, Samantha Bee's ideas, Rachel Maddow's ideas, which are not ideas at all, are they? They're not ideas at all. So we have the growth in this country of tribalism or group identity. And you hear people go on TV all the time and talk this way. Don Lemon is a perfect example. There are others. This guy Dyson. You have groupthink. You see this all the time in the media especially. uh, Where they use certain phrases or make certain arguments dressed up as journalism but really quite consistent, one network to the next for the most part, one newspaper to the next. And you have symbolism. Lots and lots of symbolism. And these sort of emotive symbols, emotive ways of thinking, emotive ways of organizing, are then said to be uh, how we are to define justice and equality, and freedom. And the only way you can truly believe in justice, equality, and freedom is, of course, through progressivism. Because you and I are throwbacks. You and I are reactionaries. You and I embrace the history of slave ownership. Even though, of course, we don't, it doesn't matter. This is how you destroy the greatest nation on the face of the earth. And in lieu of concrete examples over decades of the greatness of this country, we are told about if only we would surrender more of our liberty, if only we would surrender more of these arcane principles and ideas, these phony truisms and and eternal truths and universality, if we would only reject them, these weird ideas about natural law and the laws of nature and unalienable rights, and become modernists if we would only embrace modernity. Then we can become a more perfect society, a more equal society, a more just society, a more socially responsible society. And so this is the the argument of the status, a.k.a. the progressive. And where do they get this stuff from? Marx. Hegel. Rousseau. Rousseau, the philosopher king of the French Revolution. Ten years 
of massive terrorism and bloodshed. Hegel. Hegel, the philosopher king, if you will, the truth be told, of Prussia and the Prussian Empire and the Prussian monarchy, dressed up as a populist idea. And Marx, who steals from Hegel, applies Hegel's ideas to a material explanation of history. Hence communism or Marxism. The progressives do a hell of a good job of camouflaging their philosopher kings. They do a hell of a good job of camouflaging the ultimate consequence of their theories and their ideologies when imposed, and I mean imposed, on a free people. Imposed by judges, imposed by this massive administrative state, imposed by politicians. Pushed through indoctrination in government schools, colleges, and universities by people with tenure. Particularly in our colleges and universities where the faculty is incestuous. Which is why you have very, very few constitutionalists or libertarians or whatever you want to say uh, as professors. They are like the the reptiles at the zoo. They just happen to be there in that one building and don't really need to pay attention to them. It kind of stinks over there. Just move along to the panda bears. I want to talk more about this because it gives a fuller perspective of what's going on today, both in the con- culture and politics. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. It's a human disaster. Hegelism, same thing. Rousseauism, same thing. And yet look at this constitutional republic. Is it other incomplete failure? So which are we to follow? The ideology of statism, that is progressivism? Or the philosophy of the human being? The constitution was not designed or established to support the progressive ideology and this statism. The opposite, in fact, is the case. And so they came up with this catchphrase, really Woodrow Wilson coined it in whole or part, of a living and breathing Constitution, which is nothing more than the nullification of the Constitution. It's people who live and breathe. And the Constitution creates the parameters for governmental activity and protects the individual from governmental activity because it's government that creates tyranny and by the way so does pure democracy that's why we have a republic and so when you have a so-called living and breathing constitution many jurists embrace this particularly those appointed by Obama but others too what do you replace it with raw power Political power, judicial power, administrative power, media power. And so it's the Constitution that is the bulwark of liberty. It's the Constitution that's the bulwark of humanitarianism. This is why you see the nation unraveling before your eyes. This is why you see institutions of government 
spying on campaigns, using its, uh, its, its, its various powers in ways that really frustrate you or cause you great, great concern. This is why you see, on the other hand, the media embracing it, the Democrat Party embracing it, because the Democrat Party is the party of statism. The Democrat Party is a party that is increasingly the party of centralized tyranny. The Democrat Party exists for government, and the government cannot exist without the Democrat Party in its current form. That's a fact. When a Republican like Donald Trump or Ronald Reagan or even Calvin Coolidge as president of the United States, let me explain this. They are in hostile territory. The massive administrative state that they wish to tame or reduce or redirect will resist them because that is the governing architecture the statists and progressives and I use them interchangeably and I'll straighten that out later it is it is constructed this Leviathan for the purpose of being inflexible for the purpose of growing for the purpose of being ubiquitous You see, we can't get to paradise as long as you dare to exercise your individual free will. Only through the collective. I'll be right back. You're listening to Denali, the great one. The great one. And you can call in now. 877-381-3811. The uh, comedians, so-called, these nasty people, they're, they're the court gestures of the status movement of progressivism. That's what they are. We really shouldn't pay a whole lot of attention to them. The late-night people, Samantha B, who nobody even heard of before, these are court gestures. They're of absolutely no relevance whatsoever. And so it's important to understand the big picture till we get, so we don't get sucked up into this too. These statists, progressives, they, uh, they insist that they are the ones who are altruistic. And they are the ones who are noble. And that their ideas are humane. And their ideas are compassionate. And therefore, if you oppose bigger government, more centralized government, if you dare to exercise your free will and accumulate private property, and if you are of all things successful in this unjust nation founded on the backs of slaves, then you can't possibly be a moral or ethical person. You just can't. And this is especially the case with white people. Because of this privilege that you had and have. Now, despite the fact that the vast majority of people in this country come from immigrants, that's of no consequence. You see, this is all about groupthink and tribalism and group identification and symbolism. Race, age, class are to be used in order to define justice, equality, and freedom. 
not the fact of individual justice, individual equality, individual freedom. None of that matters. Which is why you find extremely wealthy individuals, whether they're in sports, whether they're in broadcasting, whether they're in power, wherever they are, lamenting the injustices and inequalities of this country. Because they identify with a group or an ethnic or ideological or religious tribe. Group identification. And of course, we non-statists, we can't possibly understand any of this. We're throwbacks. We're uh, Neanderthals. We, we, we won't embrace modernity, the future. And so this gives you the context to understand a lot of things, I think. You know, in Rediscovering Americanism, I talk about the, a number of things, a lot of things, but among them the administrative state. Because many of our fellow citizens have been conquered by the administrative state. They get a monthly or weekly check, which they now rely on. And this was always to be the case. This massive government administrative state, an army of bureaucrats, pushing out regulations, controlled by a a little intellectual clique. And this intellectual clique, of course, is of the uh, statist and progressive mindset. That is collectivism. And I point out in Rediscovering Americanism, there's not a seamless symmetry among and between the various American progressives and certain of the principal philosophers who influence them. However, there certainly are significant similarities of outlook and attitude toward mankind, economics, law, politics, and government. There is a zealous belief and commitment in re-engineering both man's nature and his social environment toward egalitarian and utopian ends. There's an affinity for centralized rule, whether of the fascistic or socialistic kind, some hybrid thereof or some derivative thereof. For these reasons and others, the American progressive philosophers, intellectuals, and politicians uniformly disparage the principles of the American founding, the American civil society, and the American constitutional system. Whether idealistic Uh, Excuse me. Yeah. Whether idealistic historicism, material historicism, historic dialecticism, material dialecticism, synthesizing of opposites, actualizing individualism, conscious individualism, egalitarianism, the social sciences, the behavioral sciences, whatever they self-identify as, whatever their nomenclature is. The individual is swept up into and ultimately disfigured by a whirlwind of ideological concepts and impossibilities. And as the oppressiveness and impracticability of progressivism spreads and more hardline and belligerent become its proponents and enforcers, ultimately it leads to the unraveling of the civil society. And that's what you saw with Samantha B. That's what you see in the media today. That's what you see in the leadership of the Democrat Party today. That's what you see in many judges today who do not follow the rule of law. That's what you saw in Mr. Comey, Mr. Brennan, Mr. Clapper. The civil society, as Locke talked about it, 
predates the constitutional order. It's subjugation and transformation by a voracious and an uh, unappeasable administrative state is the true object of the progressive ideologue. But the purpose of a constitution, or at least the American constitution, is to secure politically the human harmony within the civil society so that individual liberty, equal justice, and the civil order may be nurtured and maintained. The difficulty is to bring order to liberty and liberty to order. And Madison talks about this in Federalist 51. The progressives are well aware that the Declaration and its governing expression, the Constitution, are enormous impediments to their purposes, inasmuch as the form of government that best reflects the values of the civil society and secures its existence is constitutional republicanism. Thus, as is now obvious, various doctrines of administrative state centralization have been developed and increasingly accepted with the equivalent of Plato's guardians, that is, a select few of highly educated and specially trained governing elite oversee the operation of society. Progressives insist this is the normal evolution of government from a pioneering, revolutionary period to an increasingly complex and modern society. But despite the extensive writings about the supposed professional governing class with specialized expertise that will presumably bring not just order to chaos but utopian-like perfection to humanity, it is fair to ask, who are these guardians? What makes them experts? Are they experts by specific technical training or are they generalists? Are they experts by graduating from Ivy League schools? Are they experts by experience, knowledge, or judgment? Are they experts by training in the social and behavioral sciences or the physical sciences? Are they experts because they're more humane and compassionate than the citizenry over whom they rule? By what measures or standards are they experts? And who determines that these guardians are experts? Indeed, what makes them more expert in all that may or may not entail? than those who operate in the private sector. Are the latter not the true experts by experience, training, and knowledge? Moreover, how are their supposed areas of expertise matched with their assignments to particular governmental departments and jobs to ensure the most efficient and effective performance? Are job placements based solely on expertise or other factors, including office politics? In fact, it's not the purpose of the civil service and public sector unionization and Intervening policies such as seniority, affirmative action, tenure, etc., utterly unrelated to, or at least potentially contradictory, of a purely merit and expertise-based administrative system? So what do they mean by expertise that the rest of us don't have and achieve? Furthermore, which decisions are to be left to the private sector? Which decisions are better made in government field offices versus centralized offices? How can centrally located personnel know the conditions, problems, interests, and well-being of local communities, let alone local businesses and individuals? Is there such a thing as excessive centralization? And does it not result in delayed decision-making and decisions based on a lack of information and a lack of knowledge? And what is the overarching mission of the experts in the governing class? Is it to follow orders in a mechanical-like fashion? Or the broad discretion to formulate policies? Is it to administratively institute congressional legislation or to micromanage society? 
is to determine the general welfare, public good, and common destiny of the American people? What is it? And how does the voter and the political environment factor into administrative decision-making? Do the administrative state experts even attempt to discern the public will, in particular, or general matters, when fashioning rules and regulations? Or do they deem their function as apolitical and therefore immune from any such considerations? Indeed, in their purpose, isn't their purpose to defy the electorate if they perceive the electorate defined of their expertly determined policy goals? Is it not the case that at the end of every presidential term, the executive branch issues scores, if not hundreds of so-called midnight regulations, the purpose of which is to enshrine certain policies of the outgoing administration after the voters have exercised their will and before the inauguration of the incoming executive? In fact, has not administrative rules substituted for self-governance? The issues surrounding the centralized administrative state are endless. The progressives and their philosopher kings who have debated among themselves for decades and even centuries about the best forms of paradisical rule, that is utopianism, give scant coherent or practical direction. The fact is that the progressives are not more capable of organizing a complex society than a complex society is capable of being organized by anybody. But it doesn't matter, you see. Look at the disaster that Obamacare is. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Now, why doesn't it matter? Because these people are altruistic, and they're more noble than the rest of us. That's why. It just doesn't matter. And they will continue to use race and inequality, tribalism, and groupthink, and group identity, and symbolism, no matter how much power they get, no matter how centralized the government becomes, no matter how much liberty and property and unalienable rights, you lose or are under attack. Because the truth is, you get less freedom, less equality, less justice, under statism, a.k.a. progressivism. We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. None of this, none of what we're discussing tonight will be on Wikipedia. None of it, which is a thoroughly discredited propaganda operation of the left. So do not use it. No serious researcher should use it. And if you should use it, uh, make sure you check the footnotes. But do understand, uh, it is thoroughly discredited as far as I'm concerned. During this last day of Memorial Day week, most of you will take some time to uh, reflect on the greatest of this nation and how he owes so much of it to over one million men and women who've died while serving in the United States Armed Forces. All patriotic citizens like you will always remember these sacrifices that bought our freedom. All year long at CRTV, we do our best to honor all who serve and who have served in the U.S. Armed Forces by being a strong, steady voice for American liberty. 
Now, to help in our own little way to show our respect, we're offering all veterans and all active duty military personnel a $30 discount off your first CRTV annual subscription. So that's $99 normally, so it's $69 to you. That works out to less than $6 a month. That's a cheap meal at McDonald's. Not only will you get to watch every episode of my show, Levin TV, you'll also get to watch shows from hosts like Phil Robertson, Steve Crowder, Michelle Malkin, Andrew Wilkow, many, many more. Now, this offer doesn't go away after this week or after this month or even after this year because we want to stand with our veterans and our active military. But here's the thing. Why put it off? There's so many great shows going on each and every day by seriously, you know, conservative individuals who are very entertaining. Everybody's different, but it's pro-American and patriotic. So it'll be there for you, but I want to strongly encourage you to give it a try right now. To find out more about CRTV's military discount, please call 844-LEVIN-TV, 844-L-E-V-I-N-TV. Our folks are there right now, or visit CRTV.com. Now, this administrative state is the army that's been put together by the progressives, by the status. It doesn't exist in the Constitution. It's what I've always called the fourth branch of government. People now realize it. What do they call it, Mr. Producer? They call it the, uh, whatever they call it. Not the fifth column. Uh, the theology of administrative science and historicism, after more than a century of progressive centralized government in America, has demonstrated in the swamp, is what they call it, in infinite ways that it is not a science at all. The massive present-day administrative state, or the swamp as people call it, is inflicted with extensive imperfections and dislocations. Its widespread shortcomings and deficiencies include enormous levels of waste, fraud, and abuse, extensive managerial incompetence and delinquencies, overlapping programs and red tape and failed promises and objectives, all of which are documented in countless investigations, audits, reports, and books, including in a book I wrote, Plunder and Deceit. There's simply no validation of a vast, complex, modern society humanely and effectively managed by a centralized Leviathan reporting to a single chief executive, the president. There simply is not. Since the principles undergirding America's founding are beyond mortal law, beyond mortal law, they are beyond the reach of the progressives in the administrative state. Hence, the war on our founding principles, beliefs, and traditions was and is intended to, among other things, stop legitimate inquiry into teaching of first principles or purposes. They are to make, uh, they, they are to be made intellectually and culturally off limits. That is our belief system, our values, our principles. So what is left is only one acceptable and overarching agenda. That of the progressive, a.k.a. the status. The only relevant political and historical discussion, then, is about their ideas, and more specifically about their promotion. Secularism, value relativism, social experimentation, unified political power, but never about slowing the pace or altering the main thrust and trajectory of progressivism. 
There can be no serious consideration of constitutional limits on the administrative state. No serious debate about governmental spending and debt. No serious argument about the so-called science of climate change. No serious discussion of effective reforms for governmental entitlements and programs. None. The progressives' deliberate effort to denude the individual of his free will and uniqueness, to organize mankind by a growing and ubiquitous centralized authority and collective command into a conforming uniform mass, is the rejection of everything upon which this nation was founded. Now this gives the full or bigger context of what you see taking place today. From the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. Can we delve a little bit more deeply here? Can we delve a little bit more deeply? Liberty. We've touched on this before. Then we touched on it again, and now we're going to touch on it yet again. This word liberty means different things to different people. Some people think you get liberty out of government. Free college, free health care pensions that this is liberty is that liberty or is liberty more a personal and private matter that is the freedom to move the freedom to invest the freedom to collect the freedom not to do those things there are these concepts as I've explained before and really by by a man who's not alive. I wish I knew him. I would have loved to have talked to him. Isaiah Berlin. And he was a journalist, but he was also quite the philosopher. And um, he died in 1997. He was born in Russia. He was a Russian-British political theorist and philosopher, mostly. So he divided liberty into these two general but distinct categories, positive liberty and negative liberty, and others have confused this, uh, and I don't think it's been particularly helpful, because positive liberty is not what you think, and negative liberty is not what you think. When you read the Bill of Rights, when you read the first ten amendments to the Constitution, they are intended to protect the individual, and they are protected intended to protect federalism. But mostly to protect the individual against the central government. When you read the Bill of Rights, it put, they put forth negative liberty rights. It doesn't mean they're negative like bad. It means certain things cannot be done to you. The government is prohibited from doing certain things to you. Positive liberty 
to the extent that it's liberty at all, are affirmative steps taken by the government in determining who will rule over whom. Okay? Who will rule, rule over whom? So people have confused these saying Negative liberty means, you know, people are trying to take your rights away. Quite the opposite. Conservatives and constitutionalists identify with embrace, whether they know it or not, negative liberty. Statists, big government types, embrace positive liberty. And so they're constantly promoting government. You want equality? You need more government. You want freedom? Oddly enough, you need more government. You want justice? You need more government. And yet what is the institution that threatens your liberty the most? Government. What is the institution that threatens equality the most? Government. What is the institution that threatens the entire civil society the most? Government. It's not a company. It's not an individual. It's not a group of people. It's not the private sector. Private sector is dispersed. There's diversity in the private sector. It's very complex. It's almost infinite in what it does and what people do, making untold number of decisions each day. Individuals, let alone we in the aggregate. And the problem with positive liberty is if it's taken to an extreme, positive liberty isn't liberty at all. It's tyranny. When you hear Bernie Sanders speak as if he's speaking for the people, for the masses, for the workers. Bernie Sanders talks like a populist. Populism, which for some bizarre reason has been embraced by some conservatives as a good thing. Populism is very dangerous. Populism taken to the extreme is the mob. It's anarchy. The framers of your constitution feared populism and pure democracy every bit as much as they feared a centralized government and monarchy. Remember what I said. The Declaration of Independence talks about God-given unalienable rights that each one of you have at birth. No government gives it. No government can legitimately remove it. And they are based on natural rights. The golden rule is not legislation. And yet the golden rule is understood to be correct. Whether you're an American, or whether you're born in France, or whether you're born in Israel, or whether you're born in Guatemala, wherever you are, doesn't mean these are just societies. That's a separate issue. The point is it's a truism. It's a universal truth. Or as Aristotle called it, universal law. There's universal law, he said, and practical law. That is, man-made law and universal law. Now, he didn't know if there was a God or not. and He debated with himself over that issue and so forth. But that's not the point here. The point is that the founders of this country embraced that, like Aristotle did, like Cicero did. Now, how do we know that? Because they told us. That's how we know. And it wasn't just them. They embraced it like others. 
So positive liberty taken to the extreme isn't liberty at all. And yet it's the kind of thing that you hear Bernie Sanders talk about. And I use him as a foil, but you understand the point. Bernie Sanders, his ideology, his mindset has more in common with the writings of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels than it does with the writings of John Locke or Adam Smith or Edmund Burke. His ideology has nothing in common with the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. Doesn't mean he won't rave it around. Doesn't mean he won't use it for uh, uh, purposes where he thinks it's convenient because the ends does justify the means if you have his mindset. So when they talk about free education, you think about freedom. When they talk about free health care, you think about freedom. If you're of this positive liberty mindset, but if you're of the negative liberty mindset, you go, well, well, wait a minute. Who's making this decision for me? I want to make this decision. No, no, no. You don't understand. We. We get to make this decision in government. We have our experts. Our experts make the decision. Our experts develop national health care. Our experts determine what hospitals will and won't do. Our experts determine what doctors will and won't do. And we need absolute equality, too. Egalitarianism. Why should somebody get better care than somebody else? And so what happens? These so-called experts aren't experts at all. They're ideologues. They're theoreticians. Barack Obama's not an expert in health care. He's not an expert in any care. Even doctors aren't experts in all kinds of medical care. They're experts in the area they're in if they're experts at all. And so you have ideologues, political, academic, bureaucratic, whatever, ideologues making decisions for you. But don't worry, it's free. That's positive liberty. Conversely, you have individuals like me and many of you who say, you know what, I want to be free to make these decisions myself. I want to be free to pick a kind of policy that I want. I want to be free to use an insurance company that I want to use. That's considered, believe it or not, negative liberty because the government's not involved. People aren't ruling over you. Now, there's no perfect system, but there's clear, it's clear which one is pressed more toward individual liberty and which one presses more toward centralized government control, right? So when you hear Bernie Sanders say, it could be Elizabeth or whomever, Bernie Sanders and his ilk say, look at these corporations. Look at Disney, I think he said the other day. And I'm no fan of this Iger or any of those uh, leftists who run that company. But again, that's not the point. Why are they doing so well, but the workers there can barely feed themselves? So what's the solution? Government control. Government controls what the company makes. Government controls who gets one in the company. Government controls how much the quote-unquote workers get. And how do we know what they should get? Is there any kind of market system or anything? No. Bernie Sanders will decide what the living wage is. Bernie Sanders will decide if somebody needs a million dollars, a hundred million dollars, half a million dollars, whatever it is. Bernie Sanders will decide. Now, there's a lot of problems with this, including the fact that it's not only impracticable, and for him to get it right, it's impossible, but these are very complex things. 
that have real and unintended consequences. They usually wind up destroying the very target of their so-called compassion, destroying the company, destroying the investors, and destroying the employees. But that's okay, you see, because Bernie Sanders is compassionate and he's noble and he means well. He's not trying to make a profit. He's trying to do the right thing. And despite now decades and decades and decades with human experience on how awful this ideology and this theory is, whether it's Cuba or Venezuela, or as they say in Massachusetts, Cuba or Venezuela, whether it's China and the gulags that they have there or North Korea, or even if you take Scandinavia. Look at Scandinavia. How wonderful Scandinavia. Scandinavia is not wonderful at all. And by the way, it's less socialist in many of those countries than Bernie Sanders would have you believe, as a matter of fact. But that's okay. Look at the human tragedy that's taken place with this ideology, the more aggressive form of it, the more aggressive form of it. Look at the bodies. And then look at capitalism and constitutionalism. Where are the bodies? There are no bodies. Look at the gulags. There are no gulags. Look at the political prisoners. There are no political prisoners. And yet those who advance into the extreme, the so-called positive liberty, which is uh, tyranny, and dress it up as populism, as they continue to centralize power in fewer and fewer hands, or for the people... How so? Look at the destitution, the impoverishment, and the casualties, the human casualties that result from that ideology. They don't result from capitalism. They don't result from constitutional republicanism, do they? No, they don't. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. have to do with anything. What does it have to do with Samantha B? What does it have to do with the media mindset today? What does it have to do with anything? Well, it has everything to do with it. These people believe they are warriors for the cause of, of paradise. These people believe that the founding is to be discredited and what you embrace is discredited. These people believe that you and I, and this president, stand in the way of paradise, of perfecting humanity, of perfecting our government, that you and I are greedy, selfish, that you and I are dumb. We don't see the big picture, that you and I are throwbacks, Particularly if you're a person of faith. Particularly if you're an evangelical Christian, God forbid. Particularly if you hold on to these old traditions and values. There's something wrong with you. Because the progressive, a.k.a. the status, has a monopoly on virtue. When in fact, in so many instances, they have no virtue at all. 
They have monopoly on what's good and what's right, and they dare not allow a free and open debate for those who might disagree with them. And so you can see this on college campuses as an example. So much for academic freedom and free speech. Or for having conservative speakers. Or conservatives speak at graduations. It just doesn't occur, or it occurs so rarely, it really doesn't matter. So, the academy, as we like to call it, is the worst place to have a free debate of ideas. Why? Because the academy, colleges and universities, are the, are the tip of the spear in groupthink and indoctrination, in the conquering of these, these, these notions of academic freedom and freedom of speech by the faculty. And the faculty is well-schooled in these notions that I've been talking about. Positive liberty, statism, progressivism, that the great utopia is just over there, if we can clean out existing society, wipe out racism, wipe out inequality, expand freedom through free stuff. You know, uh, I was telling you about this Isaiah Berlin, and I want to paraphrase him to you. And he makes the point, as I've said, when this book originally came out, my book. He said, if you leave the battle of ideas to the intellectuals and the academics you will lose your country and you will lose your liberty in other words what's going on in our universities and colleges and in many of our public schools is destroying our country and I would take it a step further the more people who are imported into the United States who refuse to be assimilated or are not assimilated because of the barriers that the progressives have created in our own country. Because remember, they promote balkanization and groupthink and, <coughs> and so forth and so on. Uh, it's impossible to maintain the culture and it's impossible to maintain the civil society. It's impossible. And so when you look at whether it's immigration whether you look on whether it's American sovereignty, whether it is what goes on in our public school system and our colleges and universities, the public debate that occurs, even these, these low IQ comedians and so forth, it, it, not to a man, not to a woman, but damn near close enough. It's the same mindset. It's the same groupthink. It's the same symbols. It's the same trigger words, racism, inequality, injustice, social justice, economic justice, environmental justice. I'll be right back. Mark doesn't suffer fools well. So, if you're a fool... Don't call 877-381-3811. You know, you keep getting those invitations in your mailbox. In fact, you may have even already joined, unfortunately. You've got the AARP card. You thought, hey, you know, it's less than 20 bucks a year. What's the big deal? In fact, they help with insurance plans, travel, and other discounts. It will pay for itself 10 times over. 
And so you joined a liberal lobbying group that spends your hard-earned dollars lobbying against everything you believe in, everything you stand for. Well, that's why a decade ago, Dan Weber founded AMAC. AMAC is also less than 20 bucks a year. AMAC also helped with insurance plans, travel, and other discounts. And AMAC's card will also pay for itself 10 times over. But when you choose AMAC, your dollars go to support the ideals that you believe in, like protecting our borders with common-sense immigration laws, getting rid of Obamacare, and more. AMAC gets its voice from you, the member. Over a million strong. Join now at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Chances are you're going to join an organization when you turn 50, right? So choose wisely, as I did. I'm a member of AMAC. Join the one that represents you. Join AMAC, A-M-A-C dot U-S. George, Springfield, Virginia, the great W-M-A-L. Go. Mark, uh, thank you. An honor to be welcome to your show. I just uh, wanted to say very succinctly, I've listened to you in a great D.C. Uh, Bellway jam for an hour and a half, every word. You are so 100% right. I was uh, a liberal in the late 70s and 80s, Massachusetts Kennedy liberal. I went to one of the New England small liberal arts colleges. I was a government philosophy major. You summarized my $20,000 at the time education, four years worth of both studies, reading Hegel, Marx, all of it, and the founders, uh, the you know, the um, Federalist Papers, factions, and what you're saying about the intellectual roots and the consequences of it, whether you call it progressivism or the counterculture. And you touched me last night so much when you talked about the intimidation that you get for just speaking the simple truth. Uh, just for those in the audience that have never read all that stuff, uh, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't call myself a Mark Levin group. you got to try to listen with an open mind, but you were so 100% right. And I hope those in the audience who are loyal to you as I, I am just as a listener, you, you just, you're, you're so right in synthesizing everything you said. And I thank you for saying it and hope you keep up the good fight. Well, well let me thank you. You're very, very kind. Now, let me ask you a question. So here you are, a liberal. Here you are, indoctrinated. You go through college. Well, what? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've converted. No, no, but hold on. But what? Anymore, what? I know. What changed you is my question. Uh, you touched on faith. I was actually uh, I, I went into the Catholic seminary in the eighties, and I took a course in Catholic social justice teaching. And I, um, it sounds esoteric, but Leo the Thirteenth wrote an encyclical called Rerum Novarum, which was the Church's answer to Marxism. And I was expecting to a leftist type of argument, and the core of the argument was Genesis, the core of social justice is the family. And mm-hmm. I said, that's Pat Buchanan. I said, I'm a Republican. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's it, Mark. I mean, now, it, it wasn't immediate, because I'll, I'll confess that I didn't vote Republican until uh, until Bob Dole, actually, because uh, to me, when Dole gave up the majority, you know, he, he, put, his, he put everything on the line. And mm-hmm. I said, man puts everything on the line, served as a veteran. That was my first first GOP vote. But that's what did it. I mean, it was intellectual. It wasn't emotional. And um, But what you were saying about the left trying... And you know who made your argument was Albert Camus. And if anybody mm-hmm. thinks it's just you, Mark Levin, running off and saying stuff, Albert Camus, who is a humanist and a secularist, asked himself the question why millions were killed. You talked about the bodies and, uh, the, and the Holocaust and why the first half of the, the 20th century, the World War I and World War II, and he blamed... Assad, Hegel, Rousseau, Freud, Feuerbach, mm-hmm. um, and one or two others. Everybody, that, three that you named and the others. And his argument was that in the deconstruction, they want to eliminate traditional values, the seminaries, and God, and replace themselves as God. 
And the summary of what you just said is that the progressives want to substitute the French Revolution for the American Revolution. And mm-hmm. the founders knew about the French Revolution. They did not want pure democracy. That's why there's an electoral college. And that's why the president isn't elected by pure, quote, majority vote. It's constitutional. And what the conclusion you're building toward, and I hope Mr. Trump embraces it, is your convention of states, because that's mm-hmm. the constitutional way to address the over-centralization power in the administrative state that you're talking about. So um, I, that's what, what a great I, call, I George. What saying, that's, that's what it is. Well, what a great call, because Mr. Producer, Mr. Colson, and I'll tell you, during the breaks, I, I'll say to them often, does anybody even get listening? You think they even give a damn about what I'm saying? Sometimes I wonder. You know, oh, I give a damn, and, and not only that. I mean, I, I pulled off the side of the road so that I wouldn't break the administrative law of talking on my cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much, George. God bless you, Sergio, Miami, Florida, on the Mark Levin app. How are you, sir? Oh my God, I can't believe I got to you, man. Thank Listen, you. Um, all I gotta say is, Mark, I lost a country, Nicaragua. I came here, sixteen years old. And I was a lost kid. Mm-hmm. And I see what's going on in this country. I see what the Democrat is doing to the people of this country. They're brainwashing us. They're brushing the people. All I'm saying is, what... Public better wake have, up, right? Yes, yes, Exactly. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, Mark, uh, you wake me up. No, you didn't wake me up. What I'm saying is, with my own people from Nicaragua, I'm, I'm, I'm from Nicaragua. Yes, sir. And I talk, I talk to my own people, I say, hey, wake up. Don't you see what they're doing to you? Don't you see what the Democrats are doing to this country? Mm-hmm. You have to get educated. It's You have to get to know how this country was built, built in our own uh, own Mm -hmm. self. You have Mm -hmm. to grow up within yourself. Now, listen, uh, what's going on in Nicaragua right now, you see the news, right? Yes. There's a lot of kids being killed because they had it. They had it because they're being, starting to rise up against the uh, the the Marxists there. Mark, Mark, but you know what's going on? They don't have a constitution. Mm-hmm. They don't have the rule of law. They don't have nothing to hold on to it. It's, it in this country, we have our own constitution. We and that's what the Democrats are, are are trying to erase. That is, uh, thank you, Sergio. Very, very well put. Now, I'm going to tell you something that is going to infuriate my wife. The first part is going to infuriate my wife. The second part, she'll love. So this morning, I went to Dunkin' Donuts. Oh, boy. I'm going to hear about this. But this morning, I went to Dunkin' Donuts. And it was a long line. And there was a gentleman in front of me. Uh, He was wearing a T-shirt for a body shop. Blue T-shirt, something or other body shop. And he kept looking at me going, oh, jeez. Am I wearing my clothes on right? You know, to put my shirt on inside out? But actually, when somebody does that, I know they're trying to figure out who I am if they don't know who I am. And he looks at me and he says, in a voice much like Sergio's, broken English, 
are you Mark Levin? I said, I am. And he couldn't have been nicer. And he said, let me tell you something. I listened to your talks. That's why I'm doing this today. It's like Susan Rice's son. If I can, if I can appeal to three, five, ten people tonight, I've done my job as a citizen. And he said to me, I said, what, what do you do? He said, I'm a mechanic. I work on a diesel engines, so I guess mostly trucks. And he said, and I've told everybody there to listen to your show. And I said, well, I can't thank you enough. I said, why? Because you talk about liberty, he said. You talk about liberty. And I want people to understand liberty. And he comes from south of the border somewhere. I didn't have, we didn't have time to get into it. This is important. This is important stuff. I know the whole country is focused on Samantha B. I know this. But why is Samantha B important? Not because of her or her show or her or her, her disgusting character and everything. No, but she is she's illustrative. Colbert is illustrative. Kimmel is illustrative. Jake Tapper is illustrative. CNN. I have a question for you. We'll work on our footnotes now. I have a question about CNN. What is CNN's purpose? Let's just focus on CNN. What is the purpose of CNN? You know, I pointed out, and others have now pointed out, that it's in every damn airport you go into. And we looked into this, and now we know they have a national contract with a bunch of airports that go on for years and so forth. They have have a monopoly in a lot of these airports. And that was when they were, and proud to be, a news operation. Even though they were liberal, they weren't like they are today. What is the purpose of CNN today? It's not a news organization. I know they attack Fox. Fox is much more a news organization than CNN. Fox will tell you which are the news programs and which are not. CNN doesn't do that. CNN doesn't even try to be fair and balanced. Whenever they have a so-called conservative Republican on there, it's always three to one, four to one, eight to one. You have former spokespeople for the Obama administration on at Fox. Doesn't mean I like them. It means they're there. You have former spokespeople for the Hillary Clinton campaign on Fox. You don't have the same thing on MSNBC and CNN, but you know what? That's not even what I'm talking about. What is the purpose of CNN? They say they're there to protect freedom of the press. They're not protecting freedom of the press. How are they protecting freedom of the press? How is Jake Tapper protecting freedom of the press? The constant day-in and day-out propaganda? The, uh, the hate? For the current president, administration, and his family? Doesn't protect freedom of the press. We have, uh, we have evidence. Evidence abounds of police state tactics that were used by the prior administration. What does CNN do? They hire one of the people involved. Clapper. What does NBC, MSNBC do? They hire one of the people involved. Brennan. What are all the main... Big media outlets do. They promote Jim Comey in his book. Then they tell us a spy isn't a spy. 
first a spy is an informant, then they're a human resource person. And it's no big deal. It's like belling up to the bar and talking to somebody. Really? The FISA court? What's the problem with the FISA application? No big deal. What's the FISA with the dossier? So the Russians are, you know, are involved. But no, no big deal. So what's the problem with Mueller? A man who has an absolute blank slate in violation of the appointments clause of the Constitution. Absolute blank slate to do whatever he wants. What's the problem with the tactics he's used against Manafort and Lieutenant General Mike Flynn? No big deal. It's all okay. This is the, uh, the, the tyrannical mindset of the status progressives in the media, in Hollywood, on TV, in their comedy routines. It is pervasive. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. doing rich all right i have family members who keep emailing me during the course of my show i wish they'd stop here's what i love about simply safe they obsess over details like no other home security company here's an example simply safe has a camera you can control from your phone but they want to protect your home and your privacy so they came up with this brilliant idea, a privacy shutter for their camera. Now, Simply Safe wanted you to be able to hear the shutter click so you know it's closed. They wanted it to have a light on so you could easily tell when it's on. And they needed it to work for the entire lifespan of your system. So Simply Safe got to work testing different metals and hinge designs for months and months. The result, an effective home security camera with a thin, lightweight aluminum privacy shutter that works every time. It's that kind of attention to detail that sets Simply Safe apart from the other guys and keeps your family safe. It's home security done right. Get 10% off your system today at simplysafemark.com. That's simplysafemark.com for 10% off. Simplysafemark.com. Let us go to Warren, Los Angeles, California, Sirius Satellite. Go. Hey, Mark. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller, love the show. Um, man, like, just every single day, like, the left just, sh- tr- they just show the truth colors every day that they're more in line with the Nazis than... Uh, uh, okay, thanks for your call. I, I don't know if that's a plan or what. They're not in line with the Nazis. You know, here's the thing. Every soft tyranny or, or worse doesn't make it the Third Reich. Doesn't make it the Third Reich. And when we say stuff like that, we completely undermine uh, what's being said completely. I didn't say that. And there are many socialists, quote-unquote, whether they be in Europe or whether they be in this country, who have a Marxist mindset. doesn't mean they support Mao or Lenin or Castro and the mass murder that took place there. I'm talking about the ideology and what the, the ideology has resulted in. 
So to say they're like Nazis, you know, this is the wrong show for that. Let's go to Dixie, Salt Lake City, Utah, the great KKAT. Go. Hi, Mark. Thank you for taking my call. I love your program. I listen to you regularly. Uh, I've been quite interested in the Convention of States, and when I called uh, to uh, get information on that, they wanted me to uh, uh, register and vote online, and I said, no, I'd like for you to send me the forms. So that I have I no can... idea what you're talking about. I don't who to register. All right, take it up with the call screener. I have no idea. I'm not involved in the bureaucratic niceties of how this works. Let's go to Dennis, Massapequa, New York, the great WABC. Go. Hey, Mark, I'm a great fan. Uh, I'd like to amplify what your uh, uh, caller said about uh, Pope Leo and Rerum Novarum. You mm-hmm. cannot understand America unless you understand where our rights come from. Mm-hmm. And I've been rereading the autobiography of Franklin to his son, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm not I'm not here proselytizing, but the Catholic Church and Cardinal Bellamine and Rerum Novarum are the biggest bulwark we have against communism. And I was just so delighted to hear that a graduate from a secular uh, New England school, uh, when he read Rerum Novarum you know, realized that it was Pat how, how do you explain the current Pope? Well, I can't... Ha- hasn't he read these things? Yeah, well, you know, look, Francis said that his father was an accountant and that accounting made him... He was allergic to accounting. Uh, Francis, I, I, I love him. He's the Pope. If he told me to shut up, I'd shut up. But the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is a legal document... It is a constitutional document of the Catholic Church. From you don't, you don't have to convince me. I'm Jewish. You need to convince him. He's the Pope. I will never convince Francis about anything. Mm-hmm. But you get my point, right? Yeah, and my wife's Italian, by the way. So I Okay. To- well, God bless her. <laughs> I'll be right back. From the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. Well, there's activity going on with North Korea, and I think this president has done an unbelievable job, a fabulous job, in dealing with North Korea so far. I do have faith in his skills. I really do. But beyond him... I do not have faith in North Korea. I do not believe that they will get rid of their nuclear weapons for all time. Period. They may sign a deal that says that. They may conceal what they have. But they're not going to. They're just not going to. And I know people are going to be jubilant no matter what happens and so forth and so on. But I know five years from now they'll have a nuke or nukes. Ten years from now they'll have them. Uh, This regime has played this game for decades. And by the way, with the help of the regime in China. 
That's not to say I don't trust Pompeo or Bolton or Trump or anybody else. That has nothing to do with it. I'm saying the North Koreans are not going to abide by any agreement they sign. That's all. Also, look at Iran. We talked about it over and over again. The sanctions that George W. Bush had put in place had done severe damage to the economy and the currency in Iran. And then who sweep, who flies in and sweeps in and helps them? Barack Obama and John F. Kerry. F. Kerry and, uh, and Obama. Bail out the economy. Now we have sanctions on, and the only people who can undermine our sanctions uh, would, of course, be our European friends who will do anything for a buck. Anything for a buck. So that's an issue there. But uh, we could cripple Iran. We could drive that economy right into the sand. And uh, it's interesting. You'll remember, Mr. Producer, and my beloved audience, I said that I think Trump has has his idea to put sanctions on and drive them out. What, well, what are we going to do if we don't have the deal? Remember the media and the Democrats trashing the president? What are we, we going to do if we don't have a deal? What did we say? Put these onerous sanctions in there and have regime change. And then the, uh, the Buchanan wing of the kooks out there. Oh, what, are, what are we, internationalists? So what, what, what are we here? We're warmongers, colonialists, imperialists? No. It's in America's best interest to rid itself of that terrorist regime that's building ICBMs with nuclear warheads. Aimed at us. But we want to stay on a high note here, don't we? I was on uh, Fox and Friends today uh, with our buddy Brian Kilmeade and others, Pete Hegseth and, and everybody there, wonderful people. And uh, I'm not going to play the whole thing, but let, let's play this part where I am uh, talking about Dinesh D'Souza. Cut to 14, go. Mark, let's move on to some pardons that are coming down this week. Dinesh D'Souza gets a pardon. Uh, are you for that? What Dinesh D'Souza did did not warrant 20 months, give or take, in a federal prison. That's not how those cases are normally handled. The radical left-wing Democrat who was U.S. attorney there in the Southern District of New York, Comey's buddy, Mueller's buddy, the buddy of that crowd, went after him. Went after Dinesh D'Souza. And the president looked at this, and the pardon power is in there for a president to intervene if he thinks he should. And he said, you know what? I'm not buying this. I don't like what was done to him, and I'm pardoning him. I'm not, I'm not going to react to all the left-wing conspiracy kooks out there. They're going to be there no matter what happens. This is why I like this president. He does what he believes in, and he's doing the right thing. They deserved pardons, in my humble opinion, as part of the justice system, what was done to them. Sometimes injustices are actually done to conservatives and Republicans. And in this case, that's the case. It looks as though uh, back again is Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Trey Gowdy said, if I'm Attorney General Jeff Sessions, I'd probably leave the job because I'm not going to be serving the president well. How do you feel about now, even though it's almost a year later, uh, the Russia investigation goes on and Jeff Sessions still has that job. Where do you stand, Mark? Well, I, you know, I, I've known Jeff Sessions for 30 years. We worked together at the Justice Department. He was U.S. Attorney. I was Chief of Staff, and I like him very, very much. I think he made a terrible mistake here. I agree. If he was going to recuse himself, he probably shouldn't have taken the job. Or if he 
did recuse himself with the J.D., probably should have stepped down. The president has a right to an attorney general of his choosing. But I would say to Trey Gowdy, maybe you ought to step down a little quicker, too. Your nonsense about this not being a spy, but an informant. And in criminal cases, we call them informants. It's not a criminal case. It's a counterintelligence case. Don't you know the difference? You're a former federal prosecutor. They don't want to call him a spy. And now they're telling us, you know, the Trump campaign was never investigated. Let me suggest that Mr. Gowdy and Mr. Rubio and some of the others go back and listen to the testimony of Mr. Comey himself in March of 2017, in which he said in front of the House Intelligence Committee that, among other things, the Trump campaign is under investigation. What's wrong with these guys? They're handed information about a spy. They should be concerned about these police state tactics, but they never are. Instead, they want to vote to protect Mueller. How about you vote to protect the Constitution? You want to investigate Russia's influence in our uh, elections? Why don't you investigate the Obama administration that turned a blind eye to it, that was in charge when the Russians were interfering with our election, rather than the victims, the victims, that is, the Trump people? And then finally, I won't play it all for you. Um, Barack Obama said, you know, maybe, maybe I was elected president 10 years too soon. And I was asked about this by Kill Me. Cut 15, go. You just gave me a perfect segue to an excerpt in the New York Times this week of a brand new book that's out by Ben Rhodes, who was a close aide to the president, especially when it came to foreign uh, policy. Evidently, uh, Ben Rhodes got permission to talk about what he was talking about after the election came down. One of the things that President Obama speculated was maybe... Uh, maybe I came along 10 years too early. And my assumption is he means the country wasn't ready for him. Do you believe the country wasn't ready for President Obama? I believe the country's never been ready for President Obama because when you want to fundamentally transform a country, you know what that means, Brian? That means you don't love your country. You want to fundamentally transform a country. What do you want to do? Fundamentally transform its economy? from capitalism to something else, fundamentally transform its government from a constitutional republic to something else. We've never been able to hold these leftists, and Obama included, uh, to their definition of fundamental transformation. When you love your wife, you don't say, you know what, honey, I want to fundamentally transform you. Or when you love your kids, you know, you know, I, I want to fundamentally transform you, your kids. That sounds pretty weird to me. So maybe America has never been ready for Barack Obama. And should never be ready for Barack Obama. And he also called this president, when he was a nominee, a cartoon. What's your reaction to uh, President Obama calling President Trump a cartoon? I'll take a cartoon over a leftist any day of the week. And let me tell you something about this cartoon. This cartoon has stood up to the North Koreans. He has stood up to the Iranians. He stood up to the Chinese. He stood up to the Russians. Nothing Obama was capable of doing. He didn't, he didn't uh, surveil the prime minister of Israel like Obama did or Jewish groups like Obama did or members of Congress like Obama did. He hasn't used the IRS against his political opponents like Obama did. He wouldn't have stood still for Benghazi the way Obama did. He wouldn't have under, undermined the United States military the way Obama did, or undermined local police forces the way Obama did, or stuffed our courts with left-wing law professors the way Obama did. Cartoon character, I don't think we need lectures from Barack Obama, quite frankly. Well, there you have it, friends. Uh, I'm live now, and uh, we'll be doing that pretty much weekly on Fox and Friends, as we pretty much weekly are on Hannity uh, on his program. And a couple program notes to you, if I might. Don't forget this Sunday, 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific. That's how that works. Life, Liberty, and Levin on the Fox News Channel. We have a tremendous show. 
We have David Limbaugh and Andy McCarthy and me, and we'll get deeply into all these issues involving the spy and Trey Gowdy and much, much more. When we finished, because uh, we just did this the other day, uh, my crew said to me that it was absolutely outstanding. So I hope you'll watch it. It's, uh, I think it's a very important show, and I think it's a, a bracing show. Also, I will be on Hannity Monday night. I don't ask to be on these shows. They ask me, just so you know. I have other things to do, but I'm trying to get the word out there and push the, uh, the principles that we believe in. Uh, so Monday night I, uh, at 9.30 p.m. Eastern again, I will be on Hannity's TV show. I think that does it. hope that does it. I'll be right back. Mark in. Francisco, California, the great KSFO. Go. Uh, yes, uh, we seem to be making some headway uh, in Korea with negotiations. And, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, and what, are you, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? There hasn't been a negotiation yet. Well, uh, okay, but it, uh, my question really doesn't have to do with that. My question right. is, is it, uh, does this qualify if they negotiate something as a treaty, and therefore does it have to go before the Senate? And how do we make sure that if, if somebody is if somebody is giving up their nukes, that doesn't have to be a treaty. We, we don't we're not doing anything. If we're handing billions and billions of dollars to a country. Uh, uh, and uh, something of that sort, then that would be a treaty. But you know what? I don't have a problem with the president treating as a treaty. Do you? No, none whatsoever. I it doesn't bother sure me. We do it right. You know, if it does qualify as a treaty, I want to make sure it's done right. I don't don't want Trump to make the same mistake that Obama made. I don't think he will. It doesn't bother me, but I'm not sure if it would be a treaty with us. It might be a deal with, you know, South Korea. I just don't know. There hasn't been any treaty. There hasn't been any deal yet. Okay. We we don't know what they're doing yet. Uh, If he says we will denuclearize, but we want, you know, uh, half a trillion dollars, then that damn well better come before Congress. Right. I agree, with, I agree with that. But if he says, okay, we'll do denuclearize, and the president says, uh, okay, um, you know, South Korea, Japan, and so forth, you belly up. Well, I don't even know why that would have to come before the Senate. If that's the case. If, if there's taxpayer dollars concerned, I think it should be a treaty. If there's a significant deal and it involves us, I agree. But we'll see. There's no deal yet. We just don't know. It's an interesting point, important point. Thank you. Let us go to Andrew, Stan Hope, New Jersey, the great WABC. Go. Mark, when you talk about the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, I always think of the great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, his most famous speech, I Have a Dream speech. He said exactly what you said, that the rights due to African Americans come from the Bill of Rights from the Constitution, from our founding. We don't have to usurp it or change it like Obama and the leftists wants. He said, our rights are already enshrined in the Bill of Rights, and the bill is due. Conversely, when I heard Obama in a radio interview from the 90s, he was very against the Constitution. He was real babyish, saying it doesn't give you health care, it doesn't provide you a job. So it was the opposite of what the great Republican... Dr. King, 
and what you say. Thanks. Well, he wasn't Thanks a great Mark. Republican. He was registered as a Republican. And honestly, people bring that up. I don't know that he'd be a Republican today. It doesn't much matter to me. He loved it. But, 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 but people do need to realize the civil rights movement was a movement that came out of our churches, particularly uh, black churches in the South. Civil rights movement was not hatched in Washington, D.C. by the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party was split on the civil rights movement. And it took the Republicans once again to carry the ball over the finish line in terms of federal legislation. It was the Republicans that proposed the first civil rights laws uh, after the Civil War. It's the Republicans that proposed the first civil rights war, uh, uh, laws in the 1950s. It was Eisenhower in 1957 uh, and 1960. And so I just want to point those things out because if I don't, nobody will. All right, my friend, thanks for your call. Leslie. Lafayette, Louisiana, on the Mark Levin app. How are you, Leslie? Uh, I'm doing fine, thank you. You know, Mark, last night when you were talking about how all these liberals go off, I am like you. I refuse to be bullied by them. I'm not going to sit and listen to the dominance of the world. And I got very overwhelmed how you said I won't be bullied. I listen to you to get my news. I listen to other conservatives. And you have to know your history. Mm-hmm. If you don't know it, if you've never sat down and read the original document of the Constitution or Thomas Paine, common sense. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do as a country? Well, do, those I'm are... I, I, I can't answer questions like that. All we can do is battle in our own way, in our own roles, with our own families and communities, and in our daily lives. What are we going to do as a country is a very complicated question. Well, you know what? It takes people like you, like me, like your listeners, that are going to say, no more. And we're going to take it to the ballot box. Mm-hmm. And, and that is where you have to begin, at the ballot box. And thank you. All right. Thanks for your call. By the way, this administrator of the EPA, Pruitt, do you see the extent to which they're trying to destroy this guy? They want to know what kind of pens he has, what kind of desk he has, uh, who is he renting his apartment from, is he in business class, first class, what kind of, what's he doing, how's he flying, what's he eating, what's he wearing? How about his kids? What about his in-laws? What about his second cousins, twice removed? I want to investigate him, says Trey Gowdy. Yeah, yo, go ahead. Now, why are they going after this guy? I'll tell you why they're going after this guy. He's the most conservative member of the president's cabinet, period. That's why they're going after this guy. And they believe they own the EPA, the left, the Democrats, and many of these phony Republicans. And he's doing excellent things at the EPA. Then I see this guy, Bridenstine, who used to be on the show here. We supported him in the Republican primary in Oklahoma. Uh, and I've always had the highest regard for him. And he testifies as the new NASA administrator. And uh, he says, yes, I, I have to agree that, uh, that, uh, that global warming or climate change is primarily a result of human activity. I said, boy, that didn't take long, did it, Mr. Producer? That didn't take long at all. Wow. I said, even you? Seriously, even you? Yeah, it's pretty brutal out there. That's the way these things work. But this guy, Pruitt, 
stand with this guy. He's not unethical. He hasn't done a whole bunch of things wrong. They're just trying to take him out. They're going to try and use the ethics rules and and endless uh, attacks, uh, hearings in front of Congress. They want to blow this guy out and replace him with a left-wing uh, Republican. That's what they want to do. And uh, you know, we shouldn't participate in that. We can't leave our generals on the battlefield without support. That's my attitude. We'll be right back. Principled Patriot. Call in now at 877-381-3811. Ladies and gentlemen, sure, you could have harsh treatment to look young, but why on earth would you do that to yourself? Listen to Joanne from Connecticut. She said, my husband looks 10 years younger using Genesel. He saw results the first day he used it. I've also had remarkable results. Can't be without it. Imagine the bags and puffiness under your eyes gone. And watch those sagging, droopy eyelids disappear. That's years off your appearance. Genesel by Chaminet is an easy choice. Genesel continues natural ingredients for incredible results safely and quickly. It's as simple as that. In fact, with immediate effects, you'll see results like Joanne's in as little as 12 hours or your money back guaranteed. And right now is the perfect time to try Chaminet's brand new Genesel eyelid lift for droopy, sagging eyelids. Order Genesel today. And get the brand new Genesel eyelid lift absolutely free. Go to Genesel.com. That's Genesel.com. Better yet, give us a call. 800-SKIN-604. 800-SKIN-604. Call now and express shipping is also free. Friday's the perfect time to do it. Call 800-SKIN-604. 800-SKIN-604. Or go to Genesel.com. That's Genesel.com. There's really a great new book out, really smart book, by the way, and that's what you're all about in my audience. The Fiery Angel, Art, Culture, Sex, Politics, and the Struggle for the Soul of the West by Michael Walsh. Michael, how are you, sir? Um, fine, Mark. Thank you so much for having me on. It's good to talk to you again. It's my pleasure. Now, this is a fascinating book because it's written differently, really, than any book I've ever read uh, because you, you pull from culture. You pull from art. You pull from philosophy. To make the point, and your point is the West is dying. Our culture is dying. Go ahead. You explain it. Yes, our culture is dying because we've been cut off from it, Mark. We've been cut off from it by uh, the Frankfurt School of Philosophers, which was the subject of the preceding volume for this book called The Devil's Pleasure Palace. And because they want us to be uh, to hate our own culture, they first had to make us ignorant of our own culture. So this book is a prescriptive counterattack on them. This is what you need to know in order to be able to fight back politically. I think too often people think the arts are just frivolous entertainment. They're not. They're the soul of a culture, and they're where our politics come from. Now, the arts. Let's, let's talk about the arts for sure. a second. This, this Samantha B, these nighttime shows and so forth and so on, you would include that, wouldn't you? Well, I mean, they're examples of popular culture, but my book is much more focused on real, real, real art, painting, poetry, music, opera, uh, the Aeneid by Virgil, uh, Plato and Aristotle. I know you've touched on Plato in one of your books. Uh, just these bedrock foundations of our culture, that's primarily what I'm focused on, to, to mm-hmm. reconnect us to our Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian heritage. How do we get people to focus on this? Well, I think we've got to start reading again. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we cannot be completely consumed by our cell phones and our 
smartphones and our tablets and all this transient stuff. What I really wanted to do, Mark, in this book is write a book about politics without mentioning a single contemporary politician. I didn't want to talk about Obama and the Bushes and Trump. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wanted to have nothing to do with that. I wanted to really talk about the fundamental issues because that way we are talking about things that the Greeks dealt with, the Romans dealt with these mm-hmm. same problems, the Middle Ages dealt with these same problems. And, and we just keep thinking our experience is completely sui generis? No, of course not. And if we just connect ourselves back to our own culture, we can stand up to the cultural Marxists, we can stand up to the Islamists, and we can say this far and no farther. We must do that. And you do call them cultural Marxists, which is a good phrase. I think it's a fine phrase. I just read today that it's an example of the neo-Nazi alt-right, which is, you know, the left is, <laughs> is so crazy now that I, I, be, I hesitate to even look at anything that they Well, like. you offended them. You, you nail it on the head, you see. Yeah, apparently I have offended them. I'm all, and I'm all broke up about it, as you can tell. Yes. <laughs> so we're going uh, to get them. And this book is meant to give every parent, every college student, every high school student, every kid... Uh, who, who wants to learn about his own culture. You know, you want a great story? Read the Aeneid. Just read the mm-hmm. Aeneid. It's about the founding of Rome. How cool is that? Maybe you watched Rome on HBO when it, when it came out 10, 15 years ago. Well, this is the real, you know, the great original Virgil poem. It's about heroes, and it's about the sacrifices we make, and it's about the, the decisions you have to make. When, when Aeneas has to leave Dido in, in Carthage and go off to found Rome, he's torn between the greatest love of his life and his duty to to his mother, Venus, and to history, and to everybody else. I mean, it's heartbreaking. So this is what I want to reconnect our own culture back with our great stories, because they're amazing stories. Well, your book does this, because, uh, you know, you get into one of my heroes here, Aristotle, and also uh, one of the great more modern thinkers, probably not way out there, but still uh, somebody that caught my attention when I was young, the late Alan Bloom. Yes. So you, you cover a lot of territory. Tell me what you think about Alan Bloom and why you included him in your book. Well, I think The Closing of the American Mind was a very important book. It yep. came out in the 80s, as I recall, Mark, and it got a lot of attention. I was writing for Time magazine at that point, and I'm, I'm sure we wrote quite a bit about it. And he sounded this warning bell, what, now 30-some years ago, and it's only gotten worse, and we, we are creating a, a, a culture of ignorance, which is exactly what they're counting on in order to undermine us. They take our moral principles out from underneath us. Forget religion. I, this is one of the arguments I make. A lot of these principles come before there even was organized religion. And organized religion, which is at once revelatory uh, and codifying, it's taken many of these things and created a religion around them. And our religion is about heroism and about individual destiny and about the importance of standing up and doing the right thing. And what's not to like about that? How can you hate Western culture, Mark? And yet you are a religious man, are you not? Well, I'm a cradle Catholic, so that, you know, that comes with all that comes with, and I, I do try to go to Mass as often as possible, and I would say I am a conservative cradle Catholic. I just want to make sure people don't think you're Sam Harris or something like that. No, no, no I'm absolutely not, and, and both uh, Devil's Pleasure Palace and Fiery Angel have strong religious uh, discussions in them, primarily uh, religion as story rather than religion as theology, but, you know, for those who are theological, we can mix it up in these pages as well. You know, my concern is people can go all the way through the government school system and never read anything about Aristotle. Correct. They took isn't, that, isn't that shocking? Well, of course it's shocking. They took it out. You know, I went, when I went to high school, now this is back 
in the Stone Ages, but I, I had to take Latin, you know, as a, as a freshman in high school. That connects you to everything about the ancient world, including all the modern Romance languages of Europe. So naturally, we don't study it anymore. Why would we? It's just this, it's, it's been a, I really do think it's been a kind of plot to cut the West off from its wellsprings. And you see the results in the coarse cultures. You mentioned Samantha B. You don't really have to look any farther than her to see how coarse the culture has become and how evil the left is because they use this kind of thing against us and they all think it's just hilarious. Well, it's time to push back against these people. And it's everywhere, isn't it? You look at the media. I mean, the media are... are they're, they're, they're dripping with uh, this anti, or, or as you call it, cultural Marxism, are they not? Yes, they are. They're like sniggering little children, as you know. Someone uses a naughty word, and they all snigger, and they all have to write a story about it. I mean, uh, honest, Mark, I started in journalism in 1972, so I've been at it quite a while. I've never seen it. It's just complete, corrupted crap at this point. It's really... It's disheartening after having spent so much time to see what reporting has now become. It, it's, it's about gossip, it's about gotcha, and it's about dirty words. It really is like the teacher left the classroom and all the kids are running around crazy. It's just appalling. Just so people know a little bit about your background, you, you, you've been a journalist, as you point out, but you spent a lot of time as a screenwriter. Yes, that's true. What, what kind of screenwriting have you done? Well, I wrote, screenwriters, you can always ask them, you know, what movies have you done? And we're going to name 20, but you haven't seen them because most of them haven't gotten produced. That's not fully the goal of screenwriting. I wrote a movie called Cadet Kelly to start with, the one that did get produced, which was a huge hit for the Disney Channel, about a little kind of hippie girl who gets sent to uh, military school and has to learn discipline. And, and it, it's, you know, it's a, it was a fun movie to write. I wrote it with the great Gail Parent, my co-writer. We had a great time doing it. But I have a couple scripts that are out right now in, in the production pipeline, and one of them is called Charlie, which is about the Cold War, which I experienced and lived through living in, in Germany and in the Eastern Bloc during the period the wall came down. Uh, I've got a movie about Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday, which we're uh, out to directors on right now, and that's a wonderful story about these, the two greatest singers of the mid-20th century. Uh, so things like that. And whatever interests me, I write. I worked on a big project that was set in Shanghai. Uh, it's, it's a fun profession, and you don't bring politics into it. That's the whole key to success in, in Hollywood. You know, there have been a number of, at least to me, very important journalist philosophers you know, people who, who've seen things, they write about things, and then it causes them to think more deeply. Well, you, remi think, you, you remind me of that. Well, thank you. I mean, that's, that's very, I wouldn't call myself a philosopher, but what I would say is I, I had an unusual background. My father is a Marine Corps officer. Today's his 92nd birthday. Uh, he was awarded... Amen. A, God bless. God bless him. He was, he was awarded a Bronze Star at the Chosen Reservoir, one of the greatest mm. battles in the history of the United States Marine Corps, and he came home to father four more children after me. So happy birthday, Pop. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I had this odd background where... What, what is his name? His name is... Uh, John Joseph Walsh, retired lieutenant colonel in the United States Marine Corps. Well, we salute him. God bless you. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. Uh, but we moved around, so, I, you know, you don't have a consistent school. You don't have consistent friends. All you have, all I had, besides my family, was books and music, uh, because I'm a pianist. And so I just learned to turn inside, and we traveled all over the world. And if you open your eyes and see things, and, of course, I was a foreign correspondent for Time magazine during the Cold War, 
you can put things together is my point and most journalists don't do that and it's a it's a shame they they don't have the language capacity they don't have the historical knowledge and they don't frankly have the curiosity anymore and i'm sorry because it leaves the american public severely undereducated well it's great reading you uh and your columns as well as or, or your op-eds they're always fun to read too but i want to strongly encourage you folks get the fiery angel that's the name of the book the fiery angel Art, Culture, Sex, Politics, and the Struggle for the Soul of the West. Michael Walsh, Michael Walsh, we will link to this. You can go on Mark Levin Show Facebook, Mark Levin Show Twitter, MarkLevinShow.com. You can go directly to Amazon, but I would encourage you to get it. And God bless you, my friend. Great job. Mark, thank you so much for all your kindness over the years. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a great honor to have you as a friend. And likewise. You're a terrific fellow. I appreciate it. Good news, folks. Hillsdale College is offering their free online Constitution 101 course again, but only for a limited time. So register right away at levinforhillsdale.com. Hillsdale is the authority on teaching the Constitution. You can take the course based on the same curriculum that Hillsdale students use, taught by the same amazing professors. Close to one million people have registered, and if you haven't, you really should. I know this research I'm about to share doesn't apply to you, my listeners, but one in three Americans can't name a single right protected by the First Amendment. Now, that's the First Amendment. Imagine what they think about the Second Amendment. And only 25% can name all three branches of government. But get this, 33% can't name any branch of government, not even one. That's trouble. Look, we need to help make sure that our fellow Americans understand not only those facts, but our constitutional rights, too. Constitution 101 provides you the perfect overview. So register right now. Go to levinforhillsdale.com, L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. You'll even get a free pocket constitution just for signing up. You have to know liberty to defend liberty, and so do our fellow citizens. And that's what Hillsdale College is all about. levinforhillsdale.com, L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. Mark Levin. All right. What did you say, Rich? How much time do we have here? Okay. It's important to know so I don't cut a caller off too quickly here. Let's go to Charles, Washington, D.C., the great WMAL. Go! Hello, Mark Levin. It's good to talk to you, the great Mark Levin. Haven't talked to you you. in about three or four years, and it's great to talk to you. Man, where have you been? Oh, man. You know, Mark, you may not like what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it. Between 6 o'clock and 6.40... I watch, I listen to your show, and then I go to Brett Bear until oh 7 my o'clock. Goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I go to Brett Bear, then I come back. <laughs> then I come back and listen to you at 7 o'clock. There's nothing wrong with that. I like Brett Bear. <laughs> I know. He so listens got, to my show, too, just so you oh, know. But anyway, I, oh, I yes. know that. I got two questions to ask you. This is a very interesting one. The, the, the political guru of the Obama administration, David Fluff, I have not heard his name in all of this Russia situation or this FBI spying. I have never heard his name mentioned. That's interesting. You think he may have some uh, some role. Some Wasn't he role. in the White House during that period? Wasn't he in the White House? Or at least you know, maybe Axelrod. He was in the White House. Man, I don't hear those. Hey, Charles, names. can you call me next week? I got a yes, heartbreak sir. here. Don't forget. I want to hear from my man Charles in Washington. Don't wait three years. 
is officially over and the weekend begins right now. We salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel. Good night, Spritey. Good night, Griffey. Good night, Pepsi. Good night, Smokey. And good night, Zelda. Get Al-Qaeda. Get Hezbollah. Get Hamas. Get ISIS. Get the Taliban. Get all those subhuman cockroaches. And yes, I said subhuman cockroaches. I'll see you on Sunday, 10 p.m. on Fox. God bless.